everyone and welcome to Animal Welfare Conversations. Join us as we talk to people working towards a common goal to improve animal welfare. We'll chat to veterinary surgeons, veterinary nurses, animal owners, conservationists and others who have an important part to play in care and decision making about the lives of pets, domestic animals, farm animals, zoo animals or wildlife. We'll find out more about the great work that is already happening to make the lives of animals better. If you care about animals and want a better life for them, then please follow us and join the Animal Welfare Conversation. Hi everyone and welcome to the latest podcast in Animal Welfare Conversations. And today I am absolutely delighted to be with um, Dr. Sean Wensley. Now, many of you will already know Sean. He's a vet. He's a well-known figure in the veterinary profession, an advocate for animal welfare. He's a past president of the BVA and was awarded fellowship of the RCVS for meritorious contributions to the profession. So you've had a really interesting career, Sean, um, and there's lots of different aspects we're going to chat about. Do you want to start just by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Um, I'm currently, um... Senior Vet for Animal Welfare and Professional Engagement at the Veterinary Charity, PDSA. Um, and I've worked for PDSA uh, over a decade now. But my postgraduate interest since qualifying from Liverpool um, has largely been in animal welfare and animal ethics um, and veterinary ethics as well. And that was sparked at vet school, really, that interest. I did um, a, an undergraduate uh, research project funded by UFOR, University's Federation for Animal Welfare. Uh, I think that was in my third year going into fourth year and it just really opened my eyes to animal welfare science and got me thinking even more about these questions of how we use and relate to animals um, and that basically sparked my interest and desire to go on to do a master's uh, at Edinburgh Uni in applied animal behaviour and animal welfare which I really enjoyed. Um, I had some time working overseas uh, in a few different countries and again seeing different types of animal use and some of the different welfare harms that animal experience in different cultural and political and religious contexts which is of course very eye-opening um, as well as being enjoyable to go and visit these places um, and then I've, I've locumed in small animal practice I had some happy times working full-time at a small animal practice uh, which had something of an exotics caseload as well um, or a decent exotics caseload actually at the time in, in Liverpool um, but then ultimately ended up working for PDSA in this more sort of policy advocacy and, and research role. And the only other string to my bow to, to uh, have any claim to is just, as you mentioned there, um, some involvement with veterinary politics. So, yes, uh, president of BVA 2015-16. Um, and I've also chaired um, the Animal Welfare Working Group of the Federation of Vets of Europe. Um, FVA and they're representing veterinary associations from 40 European countries so again a real privilege to be able to think about animal welfare and ethics in the sort of a broad international context there. Absolutely there's so many different aspects to this isn't there um, yeah. and that that ties in quite nicely to our 
sort of first running question that we have in the podcast. I'm going to ask you it at the beginning this time for a change. Um, we have a, a, a quite the same question for every guest who comes on the podcast, and that is, what does animal welfare mean to you? And I'm sure we're going to get lots of different answers for everybody, but <laughs> what, what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, it's a great and important foundational question, isn't it? Um, I'm pretty comfortable with the uh, the definition of the World Organization for Animal Health. I think it accords with my own understanding and definition that I've been using through my career so far, and that is um, animal welfare as the physical and mental state of an animal in relation to the conditions in which it lives and dies. Um, so absolutely, it's uh, I've always been keen to advocate like others that it's both physical health and mental well-being uh, i know i think we'll come on to talk about the role of the professional animal welfare but historically as in human medicine we've tended to focus on physical health over mental well-being um, and the science of understanding the mental well-being of animals has developed a pace as you know so that's really helped with making sure we don't neglect that important part um, but it's something it's a property of the animals so it's not animal welfare isn't how how we care for them how we care for them is about moral responsibility and resources and things that we might choose and be able to do to help improve welfare but welfare itself is a is a property or a state of the individual animal well that's in my, in my conception i'm happy to <laughs> yeah <discuss. laughs> i'm just i'm just thinking what other people have said and, and where we've come from and you have come from a completely different angle and I, I also I wrote down here when you were just talking given the introduction you used the term animal welfare science mm. and I thought that's fascinating it is a true science and you're coming at it from the aspect of the animal whereas mm. I must admit I come at it from I provide welfare for mm. the animals mm. but yeah that there's so many different aspects to that yeah um, there's a really interesting sort of so-called holy trinity that runs through the whole field of animal welfare um, which you've probably come across before that being animal welfare science ethics and law and they can be thought of as what is what should be and what must be so i think animal uh -huh. welfare science again is about understanding how animals perceive the world from their perspectives and what they need and want as we can best determine and elucidate through science. So that sort of gives us what is. Then on the back of that understanding, we have to decide, hmm, okay, so they have these certain needs and wants and preferences and pleasures and pains. What should we ethically do about that? How do we account for those um, preferences and needs when we're when they're under conditions of human stewardship so that's an ethical question mm -hmm. so you know simply knowing what they experience doesn't tell us what we then have we should do in light of that knowledge and then in a democracy ideally those ideas trickle out and you get a sort of um, population level awareness and consensus on what we should do and it gets enshrined in law and that becomes what we must do and it's a lovely kind of trickle down three-step process <laughs> It is. That, that is a quite marvellous way of looking at it. And it makes perfect sense when you explain it like that. It sounds quite straightforward when you explain it like that. But I'm guessing in reality, it's an awful lot more complicated because 
how, how do we understand what an animal wants and all these yeah. challenges? Yeah, I suppose, and that's interesting because it can be, there's complexity at each of the levels, isn't there? Science, ethics, and law. So yes, the science fundamentally is about assessing the internal, as best we can, assessing the internal subjective mental state of another species. Mm-hmm. And if you're a complete purist, you would say, well, that's never possible. And if you go further than that, you know, I can say even you might tell me what color green is and try and describe it. And, and but it's still not the same as how I perceive the color green. So there's something problematic and thorny about the central question that this all hinges on. Um, but nevertheless, as in humans, you know, we even though we can't objectively assess the mental state of, for example, a newborn baby or someone with a certain mental impairment, that means they can't vocalize their subjective state. We nevertheless think it's important to provide for their welfare as best we understand it. So, you know, that doesn't preclude being nice and compassionate and humane. Um, so there's that scientific complexity about assessing welfare. But as we say, that's come on in such leaps and bounds. And there are such interesting and fascinating ways of trying to assess welfare, which I try in all modesty to uh, convey through through parts of the book. Um, then once we have that understanding, all the ethical questions sit in the context that we touched on earlier of the political, uh, well, ethical and, ethical and legal, the two ethical parts, the ethical and legal parts, they sit in the context of prevailing social attitudes, politics, religion, custom, tradition, sense of personal identity, um, competition with other political pressures, and, you know, <laughs> so it goes on. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You then have a whole other Pandora's box of... Uh, challenges should we say to try and act on what we find out yeah lots lots of challenges um you mentioned your book there and and I really do want to talk about the book that you've recently written um through a vet's eyes how to care for animals and treat them better it's a marvelous book and if there I mean I was thinking who is the the readership of this book and as a vet student I would have loved it because there's so much content in there you've got all the references the theory the knowledge absolutely everything but it's also a a wonderful book just to read for somebody who's interested in nature and animals and wildlife and all that sort of thing so can you tell me what was the inspiration for writing the book well, thanks very much for, well, A, reading it and B, <laughs> really kind comments. Um, the answer to that is an extension of where we've just been. You know, I, I, yes, I wanted to help raise awareness of some of the persisting, stubbornly persistent and common welfare problems in the world. Um, you know, we can't really begin as a society to engage with those and think about ways to improving them if we're not aware. So there's a bit of awareness raising. But actually... Alongside that was, I was so intrigued and fascinated by welfare science once my eyes were open to it, I actually really wanted to try and just convey some of that as well to a non-specialist audience. You know, it's not a technical book, really. Um, But these fascinating scientific methods that we now have of attempting to understand animals' minds, and I think doing a reasonable job of it, um, are... Fabulous. You know, I, I can say that because I don't do the work. I'm in, in awe of the scientists that do. And I go to all of their conferences and read their papers and just, um, yeah, bathe in their reflected glory. So if, if we can help <laughs> take that to, to the public and decision makers, 
hopefully, as it's done for me, it'll stop some people in their tracks and go, wow, you know, sheep have all of these capacities and cows and pigs and other common species aren't as dumb or indifferent to the ways they're treated as maybe we thought or hoped they were. So it's yeah. kind of challenging in that respect. But that, they were the motivations, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. And, and yeah, seeing the similarities between people and animals and the, lots of different different aspects and, and one thing I did want to ask you about that, that I sort of noticed in the book is that you balance nature writing alongside and an obvious enthusiasm for nature alongside the challenges of keeping animals in captivity whether it's for pets whether it's for farming or whatever way that that we are for want of a better word, using animals or, or living with animals. Mm. And it came across that you wanted to mirror your freedom as part of your, your nature, that you, you're exploring, that you were doing, going out and seeing nature alongside the restraints of animals kept in captivity. What, was that an intentional thing to do or did it just sort of evolve? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really pleased that you've um, picked up on that. I had I had three, um, I think, underlying reasons for incorporating the nature writing and try and weave through the book that, as you said, a sort of celebration of nature and reflections on nature. Um, those three reasons were primarily to try and um, develop a relationship with the reader and convey a sense of authenticity because the the animal welfare harms that I describe um, in the in the different areas that you've mentioned. So they are animals used for uh, food, animals farmed for food, animals that we keep as companions, animals that we use for sport, particularly uh, sport horses, and then wild animals impacted by human activity. They're the main areas of animal welfare that I talk about. Um, but the, the the challenges in those different areas are described, as the book suggests, through through my eyes. And if we're going to walk a mile with each other, then I try to, from the outset, let you know who I am and what I am. And that's fundamentally someone who's loved nature all my life. So there was that point. Then, again, very faithful to my own personal experience was to try to use nature for its well-documented capacities to uh, foster reflection and psychological restoration so as I've done in life yes you might see some things at work or on a placement wherever that you didn't find very pleasant you can nevertheless go down to the beach that night or take a walk along the lock or wherever it is you might may be fortunate to live whatever green space you have access to and just go you know what the world's not all bad <laughs> so you can both <laughs> use the space to think about what you've seen and reassure yourself that there is some beauty out there as well as suffering so I think the book probably would have been a bit of a heavier read if I hadn't tried to bring that that levity. Um, and thirdly, I suppose, pertaining to the, the kind of science and animal welfare assessment, and probably, I think, to your reflection as well, it was to remind us all that the animals that we keep and use for our benefit do have an evolutionary legacy. They didn't land on our planet domesticated and ready to be used by us. We've, of course domesticated them um, but not bred out all of their needs and wants that they evolved to have and it's really important as you know that those needs and wants are provided for because that's a central part of their well-being and quality of life in in captivity 
that's really interesting that point because I, I was having another look at the book this morning and, and there was one but I noticed about domestic animals and I, and I sort of focused in on that word domestic and was wondering and didn't have an answer but was wondering what do we mean by domestic animals and and you've as you've said there you know we've not bred out all of their needs they still have a lot of those inherent needs yeah. that you will find in wild <clears throat> animals and and going back how how do you think we should approach this going forward then with domestic animals do you think we should continue the cycle of breeding that we have at the moment or for thinking about brachycephalic dogs and the mm. kennel club you know should we be consciously considering what we're doing and why we're doing it how how can we approach that going forward yeah again so if we've already covered the central scientific question how do we assess quality of life in other species this yeah. is the central ethical question yeah. what yeah should our relationship with animals look like in light of the knowledge that they are sentient and probably very much more like us than we've perhaps given them credit for. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the breeding stuff's interesting. So we've essentially obviously bred them to suit the, the purposes that we had in mind for them. So we've either bred for rapid meat conversion or for certain appearances, you mentioned the brachycephalics, um, or for certain behavioural traits like guarding or herding or fighting. So we've we've got a certain trait in mind for across these different uses, and we've kind of selectively bred for that trait. But often then we've either, as in the case of brachycephalic dogs uh, and others, cats and rabbits, selected for something that's inadvertently selected for something that is found to be harmful, both the, the, the skull shape itself and some of the associated conditions that have become prevalent in the populations just by accident by virtue of selecting for a flat face and the other thing is with the looking at the behavioral needs and the evolved behavioral motivations and traits they've at best only really been tinkered with so we were where a behavioral trait was the focus of the selection like docility or as i say fighting or guarding still it's only that one part of the behavior that's been tweaked and when we've been selecting for other things like muscle mass or uh, a flat face, behavior at best, you know, is sort of largely left alone. So the, the classic examples are things like in a, dom a domesticated pig, although we've bred for what um, high litter sizes, good conversion to meat and so on, carcass quality, all that sort of thing. A, 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 a pig wants to root, you know, they, they still want to root massively. <laughs> Um, and they want to wallow when they're warm. And really importantly, they want to separate from others in the group and build a nest before they farrow. And of course, if they're in something like a farrowing crate, then that's the sort of thing that they can't do. But we know they still are, even though they're no longer wild, trotting around in the forest, they still really want to build that nest. Um, and that's frustrated and is associated with suffering. It does. It does. Just as a, a slight aside there, I, I have my own pigs here on the small holding. Mm. And you've reminded me, one one of my my pet pigs was having a litter. And I'd got my dates wrong when she was due to farrow. Mm. And mm. she was a week ahead of where I thought she was going to have them. And I hadn't given her 
piles and piles of straw to build her nest with. So mm. she just went round the field and she dug up nettles, weeds, right. whatever, yeah. and but still built that nest. Yeah. And I, yeah. I went out and found this and went, oh dear, get the straw, quick, <laughs> get the yeah. straw. But yeah, that is so ingrained in them that she yeah. was going to do this with right. what, whatever was there. She yeah. was going to do it. Um, it. And that absolutely highlighted that to me that that is hard hardwired yeah. in there for them isn't it yeah and I mean lovely I, I have a similar anecdote just briefly on um laying hens so we I was with a friend who'd um made provision to keep some laying hens at home they had a nice coop and a range and fox proofing and, and all the rest of it um but there was the opportunity you know the expats where you can go and um take them from ones that have Kept, been living in a cage uh, commercially up until that point so I, just, I went with him you know I was fascinated by the whole thing and interested and just accompanied him and we went to the collection point and took these ex-bats home so importantly I mean yeah they come out they've, they've not seen daylight before so they've got a slightly odd gait and they're very poorly feathered and scrawny and what have you but all the characters there and they're still capable of laying eggs we took them home and they, so the two important things are they're fully domesticated, i.e. they've been selectively bred for many generations, and they've only ever experienced a cage in a, a farm building. So they've never seen a sort of normal or natural habitat or environment. Mm-hmm. And the first night that we put them out into that range, they jumped up onto the, the perches to roost, which is what they do obviously at night. They all went inside and they immediately started laying their eggs in an enclosed space, i.e. the little nest box that was provided. It doesn't take, they don't have to learn any of that stuff. It's just there, ready to go straight away. And it was, yeah, another fascinating example of, of that. Because it begs the question then, okay, when they can't do that, what's going on? What What is the psychological consequence of not being able to, uh, not having an outlet for those highly motivated behaviors? And that's when we see the abnormal repetitive behavior, um, abnormal um, self injurious behavior like feather pecking and so on and so forth you know there's all sorts of aberrant consequences that follow there are yeah there's a lot to think about there isn't there mm. a lot to that yeah. um i'll move on to my next question you give lots of examples of welfare challenges in the book what i want to get from this is to highlight good practice as well as the challenges so i was going to start with are there any examples of good welfare that you can highlight and I think it's really important. I def- definitely tried to make this a, a a dimension of the book. So I wanted it for, for all of its warts and all and unflinching descriptions of unpleasant things. I did want to try and put a focus on have an optimistic and forward looking slant. So where there were um, examples of things that were going well or improving, I definitely wanted to include them. Um, so I guess to give a theoretical answer, it's anywhere where physical health and mental well-being are being looked after. Um, but that's a bit of a get out, isn't it? And also some of the conditions that then lead to that being the case. So, in the, for example, in companion animals, we know there's quite a big problem with impulse purchasing and people not necessarily doing much or any pre-acquisition research. So in the examples where that research has been done, then you, you know, you're more likely to um, have a pet that's having its physical and mental needs met. Similarly, with things like government policy uh, on the farm animal side in particular 
There's a really interesting government-funded scheme now in England, the Animal Health and Welfare Pathway, which is providing public, so-called public money for public goods, and it's recognising animal welfare as a public good. And so for pig farmers, for example, that want to invest in new buildings that don't rely on crates, they can... Um, the intention is that they'll be able to get public subsidy to help them do that. And that's pretty fascinating and brilliant, as far as I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on the on the equine side, an example that I included in the book, because we talk about some of the welfare needs of horses and racehorses, I mentioned here some of the industry kind of influences and opinion leaders. So I mentioned um, Rebecca Curtis, who's a leading UK racehorse trainer on this, just saying on the, the benefits of turnout to pasture and companionship to horses. Uh, on her website, she says they are horses and herd animals at the end of the day. And it's probably quite boring for them to be stuck in their boxes 23 hours a day when they're not ridden. So hours go out and have a role and it keeps them eating and healthy. So that sort of comes at the end of the chapter that's highlighting a lot of the traditional practices where they maybe don't get that companionship and they don't have much fibre in their diet and so on. But ending on the high of, it's not just a sort of theoretical complaint, you know, a theoretical discussion and, and complaint. There are leading racehorse trainers like her who are trying to challenge the status quo and, and evolve the status quo to more welfare compatible practices. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I want to do through these podcasts is highlighting these little islands of good practice that's out there and raise awareness about that so other people then follow those examples yeah. and yeah, say oh it does work because yeah. the automatic reaction is oh it'll be timely it'll be more labor intensive it'll be more expensive yes. but not necessarily no and I mean I'm, I, you know that's a very live discussion in Europe at the moment you know there's the European Commission have happily um made a commitment to end the use of cages and crates in European agriculture. Um, the intention is for that to be by 2027. And yeah, you know, we've we've relied on those for many years for pigs and, and hens. Sometimes when you when farms and farmers start moving away from those systems, they see problems. They might see mortality go up. They might see uh, rates of infectious disease or parasitism go up because, of course, that close confinement protects them from those things. But once a signal from society that society is no longer going to tolerate on ethical grounds systems like that, which is what happened in Europe, there was a so-called uh, European Citizens Initiative, which garnered over a million signatures. And that's what's led to the, the Commission's commitment. Once society said, well, you know, we just will not support that anymore. Then you start seeing re both research, academic research and farmer practical approaches to see, OK, well, we can't do that. We say, how can we do it the different way and start to gain knowledge and experience and do it better? And there's a really interesting um, paper published in Nature, which I mentioned in the book, which shows that as that as that mindset changes and as experience builds with the new way of doing things, knowing that you can't fall back on the old way anymore, then you start to get comparable mortality rates and comparable um, infectious disease and you know parasit uh, rates of parasitism. And hopefully improved. I mean, comparable as a baseline, but certainly no worse, you know. Um, so yes. I think that's optimistic as well. You get a strong signal from society, commitment from the, the politicians, and then the rest of the world just has to evolve. <laughs> it has to move in that direction and it, yeah. has, it has to evolve. Um, yeah. What, on the opposite then, what, what do you think are the biggest challenges in relation to animal welfare? Well, probably fundamentally, it's still lack of awareness of 
non-human animals capacities you know like, as we've already talked about so just the surprise to find out that, that they think that the evidence would suggest they think and feel essentially just like us that's not an argument for saying they're you know little humans in furry feathery and scaly suits but so we, we don't lose sight of their species specific needs but nevertheless their subjective experiences can be very very akin to ours so there'd still be societies that maybe haven't started discussing that or thinking about that or you know the awareness isn't there so they are they continue to be viewed as inanimate objects that are sort of purely there for our our use potentially um so i think anything we can do to build awareness of sentience is valuable and actually just as a, an aside on that uh, just re just recently there's been a paper published looking at working equids in developing countries and they bring as we know such important human benefits for the work that they do on draft and plowing and carrying bricks and all sorts and aren't you know don't always fare very well as a as a result of that they, they may not be the resource or, or knowledge to look after them well and so traditional approaches to trying to improve their welfare have kind of centered on arguing for improved human benefits if you look after them if you treat the lameness if you treat the dental disease they'll be able to carry those loads for you for longer that sort of thing mm -hmm. what has recently been demonstrated is that where awareness of sentience has been demonstrated to grow amongst their keepers and owners they're the ones who go on to make the improvements that are being are more likely to make the improvements that are being recommended so right. maybe we've we have viewed it in very sort of narrow utilitarian return to work type argument yeah but even in those examples if you can help persuade reassure demonstrate pain and suffering and loneliness or any other range of emotions then it, that's not lost on on animal keepers and users even in some of those most extreme examples mm -hmm. um and a similar paper was published in 2020 around looking at pet rabbits so were the owners awareness of a rabbit's capacities and capabilities the things like they really need a companion and they can feel pain and they're not just stupid little animals that twitch their nose at the bottom of the garden and not much else you know yeah. Yeah. the sentience and personality is understood and appreciated again it was demonstrated that owners were more likely to start providing for the things that you know we we know to be important for their welfare so I think trying to raise awareness of sentience and, and mental feelings and mental capacities is, is quite an important, found, again, foundation stone or cornerstone. Yeah. And then beyond that, I suppose I would look at it in terms of the different areas of animal use again. So in farm animals, we have things, the persisting problems would be close confinement, which we've touched on, cages and crates, because of the impacts that they have on frustrating behavioural needs. Widespread mutilation still your tail docking teeth clipping yes we understand why those practices have been done previously but we can look at different ways of uh, doing things potentially and again there are examples of farms and vets who are doing things differently and moving away from those mutilations um, and when they've not been able to to increasingly use things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to help manage the pain associated with them mm -hmm. um, so I think that's important and then again thirdly on the farms um the selective breeding so things like selectively breeding for growth rate in broilers but that being associated with um health and welfare problems like lameness and and others um so we can reduce our selection pressure on those on the companion side i think you've already touched on it i think brachies is a massive one big big challenge brachies breeding for brachycephaly and the, the problem of still 
not enough pre-acquisition research before acquiring any companion animal. Mm -hmm. um, I think in thinking about the question, a nice little, I, I like the framework um, in terms of quantifying animal suffering and therefore the size of a welfare problem of severity, duration and numbers of animals affected. So okay. for any problem like brachycephaly, you can um, apply those three things. How severe is it from the animal's point of view? Well, in that case, it, it's really quite severe. You know, they can be essentially uh, uh, hungry for most, for, which is unpleasant. And um, severity duration, how long are they affected by that negative consequence for? And if they've developed brachycephaly as a puppy, it can be for pretty much their whole life. And then numbers of animals affected, what proportion of brachies develop it? Well, again, that can be quite high. So it scores highly on each of those three. Mm -hmm determinants of, of the, the scale of a welfare problem. You, you just reminded me of, of an example case that um, stuck with me from many years ago with a brachycephalic that, that it had a tumour and I had to operate on it. And mm. I didn't want to anaesthetise this dog because its breathing was horrendous. Mm. But actually, once we anaesthetised it, and I'm sure you're going to recognise what I'm going to say here, Sean, once we anaesthetised it, it went, while it was under the anaesthetic, it went from being a blue colour to being a very healthy pink colour. Yeah, yeah. And I was quite taken aback by this, and you think about it, well, it makes perfect sense. But then getting to the end of the anaesthetic, taking the tube out, and the poor dog went back to being mm. a blue colour again mm. it, it is such a challenge because i can see why they've been very popular to use brachycephalics in marketing and advertising campaigns recently and people like them and they look cute and they're lovely but mm. there are so many problems that that go with it yeah. how how do we win people over then is it purely education like you see and you've given some lovely examples there of providing people with the education and then they understand what's happening so is that the best way to go forward is there anything else we can do to try mm. and improve the mm. welfare of these animals yeah i think i mean it always has to be a multi-pronged approach doesn't it i think i mean if you strip it right back probably there's something about education and awareness as a first step because as we said earlier if, you, if, if no one knows about these things then we can't even get off the starting blocks there's education and awareness then you can maybe identify some of the low-hanging fruits to solve a certain problem and look for as we said key opinion leaders or industry influencers who are early adopters of wanting to do something more humanely and compassionately they've been persuaded of the argument and said okay that, that's for me and that might be someone hopefully that others look up to and maybe they have a social media platform or, or whatever it is yeah. and that can help then build what you might call sort of com community consensus and I know meanwhile we'd love to get a legislative solution for lots of these things but if the legislators and politicians individually are persuaded nevertheless they don't like to come in usually do they from sort of left field and propose something that's really quite under you know little known or or unpopular so if you can build the community consensus and then the legislators can come in and sort of seal the deal they pass a piece of legislation that kind of accords with now what everyone's feeling um you might have a new 
a revised kind of social more or social attitude. Um, and well, again, as we were saying at the start, that can then nicely translate in a democracy to um, legislation that reflects that new societal attitude. Um, but the, the routes to achieving all of that, some of the different levers, we can definitely look as uh, our, ourselves as individuals. So what we buy, what we um, role model through our own decisions. Um, we can look at engaging with charities that might be donating to them or signing petitions or signing lobbying letters to MPs that the charity might be organizing. Uh, that's another route corporate responsibility and corporate opportunity you know so a lot of big businesses want to make sure a again that they are sort of doing what they feel their customers want them to do they want to chime with their customers values um so we can choose to shop in certain places that do mirror our values and be thoughtful about that and increasingly they also have you know don't they their corporate social responsibility um policies and statements but if we haven't signaled that we care about animal welfare then they might not include animal welfare in those statements and they're the traditional routes as you might yeah no one more actually on the brackies um you mentioned advertisers and marketing there's been some lovely work or effective work at least between bva not least british veterinary association and other members of the uk brackies phallic working group which are the likes of the some of the leading welfare charities uh bsaba the cattle club and Royal Veterinary College, University of Cambridge, so, so on and so forth, making representations to the greetings cards companies and some of the other advertising bodies, trying to explain to them why perpetuating the, the popularity of these breeds isn't very good for the from the animal's perspective. And uh, we had a nice result earlier this year, 2023, uh, when Moonpig, you might have seen it, made a commitment to stop using pugs uh, in their greetings cards. So stuff like that, you know, again, can be yeah. effective. And a lot of these big businesses, they've never really, they just haven't thought about it. They're not resistant to it. They're just like, oh, okay, Mayor Culpa. Uh, <laughs> we look forward to working with you to do things better that's great <laughs> yeah which is brilliant if they come on board and they're willing to listen and, and that's that's fantastic yeah. um i wanted to ask a question about farm animals and you've possibly covered some of this already but you know with the, the current rise in veganism and there is an awareness about where our food comes from is there anything else in addition to what you've said already about the welfare of farm animals going forward? How how can we ensure the best welfare we can for farm animals? Yeah. So um, so again, I, I'm, the starting point would be the sort of obvious but important. It's a combination of physical health and mental well-being. Mental well-being largely being determined by behavioural opportunity. So if they're in cages and crates, then that's a particular risk for them not being able to express their behavioral needs similarly if they're in very impoverished or barren living environments uh, you know without any sort of enrichment uh, depending on the species then that's a, a, a big risk factor as well so that's what we're aiming for there are as we know some farm assurance schemes that go above baseline uk uh, legal minimum standards and they'd be the likes of rspca assured and uh, soil association organic for example they might have lower stocking densities commitments not to use cages or crates um, commitments around pain management for mutilations where they're still deemed necessary or they don't use them at all that sort of thing um, bva produced a really nice infographic which i've reproduced in the book um, with their permission to help 
people who are doing their shopping and are concerned about these sorts of things to look for the logos that would allow you to select as an individual those products over over others so that's one thing we can do just be thoughtful about our own um purchasing choices i mean this is so so pertinent at the moment and a real problem because as you might have heard with some of the trade deals that we've now struck as the uk post brexit um unfortunately we've sold out on some of our own welfare standards so there's been a lot of lobbying to try and make sure that that wasn't the case and we wouldn't be importing products that that had that came from countries with lower st welfare standards than our own but there's a real possibility now that we're going to see for example eggs from the barren battery cage my goodness one of the most egregious welfare harms that we've caused to farm animals now reappearing on uk shelves and if we're not aware of that, if that happens very, very regretfully, then it's sort of down to either the various food businesses like supermarkets and restaurants to, as part of their own commitment, say we won't be stocking them. That's one possibility. That's one possible route. Yeah. If they do, it's down to us as individuals to know what we're looking for. Um, and I know that's not as effective as not having them there in the first place, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But this 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 landscape of evolving trade policy at the moment and trying to make sure that UK welfare standards are protected is very very live and important so important <laughs> incredibly important but it is very difficult I can see you know politicians also have very lots of different demands on them we have an economic crisis people are concerned about what their food is costing and want it as cheap as possible but at the same time if we start bringing in cheaper food from abroad then the farmers here don't have a market for it so why are they going to bother will they stay in farming that's right and the entire thing yeah instead of getting better yeah is is getting worse yeah um, so we end up race to the bottom and as you say our own farmers and farming industry could well be put out of business i mean aside from the importance of the animal welfare dimension yeah that our own farmers could go out of business um, and in, are in, increasingly concerned about that. The other thing, even if they don't actually go out of business, there's interesting research looking at the relationship between good animal welfare, good conditions of farm animals on farms, and either market or government support, economic support to make that happen, and farmer well-being, and uh, and particularly in respect of pride and satisfaction. So again, whilst I'm I talk openly about farm animal welfare problems i hope anyone that does ever read the book never thinks i'm attacking farmers they're sort of the, the victims of prevailing circumstances and i think the evidence would suggest and ones that you and i will have both met and spoken to they want to do things differently and better but just feel so hammered by the system that they maybe don't have the same sense of pride and satisfaction that goes with being afforded the opportunity to do it better yeah, it is really difficult when the margins are so tight in farming and things can change just from one day to the next, whether they're going to make a profit or make a loss. Mm. It is so difficult um, working in farming. I have lots of friends working in farming and I, and I know what it's like for them and the pressures that they're under and that they want to do the best for mm. their animals. They want happy healthy animals mm. um but it's being able to do that within the restrictions that are placed on them from elsewhere it yeah. is incredibly yeah. difficult so we sort of walk a tightrope don't we as vets i mean on the one hand we want to 
we have unique access to what's going on on the ground and so therefore something of a unique responsibility not least because of our oath and our professional responsibility to animal welfare to kind of speak up and speak out and raise awareness of these issues and stimulate societal interest and discourse and so on on the other hand we don't want our clients our farming clients and others to think that we like everyone else are piling on the pressure um but I've, I've always, I guess, sentience can't be our profession's inconvenient truth. So if we find, and you know, if it's the case that animals are experiencing harms and we do have to speak up and speak out. But I think there's also something about helping future-proof animal-using industries in light of these evolving social demands and norms. So like, like the, the cages and crates example that I've given, um, if we can... If, if they're very, very mired in the status quo and just trying to survive and we can help them look up and look out and think about trends and ways of evolving, you know, transitioning, these are important words to a, a more humane future, then hopefully we can we can pull that off. And I think we see examples of that happening. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. You mentioned the veterinary profession there, um, and about that role that we have on a one-to-one -one basis with the farmers, the pet owners, the horse owners, all that sort of thing. How do you see the bigger role of the veterinary profession in animal welfare? Mm. Well, that was central. We, um, When I was at BBA on the officer team, uh, we developed and published BBA's first animal welfare strategy for the profession in 2016. So those questions were very pertinent then. Um, and it really was mandated by members increasingly saying, you know, what is the veterinary view in this rapidly emerging and developing field um, of, of animal welfare? So some of it was as simple as, as we've already said earlier in the conversation, reflecting on our view and understanding of welfare, i.e. it's not just physical health. And when a, an animal is physically healthy, we still may not have provided for all of their welfare needs, uh, particularly behavioural or needs for suitable companionship or whatever. So just making sure that we've got contemporary um up-to-date view and definition of what of what animal welfare is that was pretty easy then thinking about our primary ethical responsibility so we talked about vets being either animal welfare focused client and industry focused or business focused and the point of the focus was to really draw out what our principal primary overriding motivation is and we through consultation and lots of discussion concluded that we are hopefully unsurprisingly animal welfare focused that's why we're there but nevertheless of course we should have sympathetic understanding empathic relations with clients and industries and we should be charging fairly and unashamedly to keep the lights on and make sure that we're making a fair living but those two things are enablers to improve animal welfare. So we're not in it for the money. We're not in it to appease and please clients and industries. They're not our primary purpose for being on the planet, but yeah. they're really, really important to enable our, our true purpose and goal yeah. of improving animal welfare. So we captured that. Um, and I'll just say one other thing. We, we also articulated and captured a, something of a dual responsibility. So, you know, our, our oath is all about protecting and serving animal health and welfare for the animals committed to my care so that's something about the the vet owner interaction and relationship but there was something then of a discussion about well 
are we then compelled as a profession to speak up about root causes of problems like close confinement or breeding for harm or whatever so I think if if you're not doing the latter then you're kind of always picking up the pieces if you've got a brachy and you do the surgery that that brachy needs no one could ever accuse you of not fulfilling your oath to animal welfare but if you do it day in and day out for your whole career and never well not necessarily you individually but the profession writ large don't utter a peep about the underlying reason that they're coming into our practices in the first place then there was a sense we're maybe not fulfilling our full duty and responsibility to actually have a broader kind of leadership and advocacy role um and this is what i love about being in in veterinary politics is to have those sorts of discussions and to think them through and to challenge each other and go yeah no we, we we actually have a responsibility to be part of the bigger picture as well and to challenge the status quo of animal use um and that was captured in the in the strategy and now stands as, as veterinary policy in both the UK and Europe. So that's quite an achievement, you know, and, and as a profession, the veterinary profession is the one that's going to see all of this you, and just see the scale of brachycephalic problems, feet problems in dairy cattle, having to do caesareans in certain breeds of animals, yeah. all these sorts of things that, that that's bringing all of that there. Yeah. So building on that, what do you think the challenges are that we face as a profession and how, how can we tackle those in relation to animal welfare? We've got our background challenges, haven't we? The myriad challenges of burnout, mental health, recruitment and retention, diversity, um, and those in the context of Brexit, cost of living, pandemic. I mean, that's all well rehearsed and really important as a as a backdrop i mean we you can trot them off like that but they are really <laughs> deep and important problems um and all of those things as we well know can lead to either a reluctance or a difficulty to engage with some of these sorts of wider social issues important though they are and i think that's where the likes of bva do such an important job you know they're taking that on on behalf of the individuals yes it's nice if we join as members and help fund it through our membership but they really do so much work on our behalf to keep us relevant and engaged with you know the bigger picture even if we are struggling to find time and energy to do that ourselves so that's what one set of challenges others are then things like education in animal welfare science ethics and law so there have been surveys looking at the extent to which those sorts of topics are coming onto the the undergraduate curriculum um, that was at European level and certainly there's more of those things being taught now but still you know room for improvement on at some of the universities that's not I say not just in the UK but in Europe more widely but including the UK and then there are practical difficulties like again I think this is an interesting dynamic between the individual and the associations but for you as an individual in your daily work to to challenge some of the welfare harms can can be and is really difficult and particularly if your identity is as the person that's part of that community to help that farm or those stables and you know you've maybe got no past record of really cha challenging the fundamentals yes you might challenge a certain wet worming regime or you know pr promote a different way of doing things but actually challenging some of the underlying fundamentals it, no one would say that's easy but if you can be if you can mandate it in your professional bodies and they sort of do some of that on your behalf and then those conversations trickle down to the stables and the kind of grassroots well then they've softened the ground for you and you've just got to come in at that stage not 
resistant or defensive or clinging to the past and say, yeah, this is novel, modern, contemporary, evolved thinking. So what's that? Being open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like that, being novel and modern. That's that's a lovely way of looking at it, for, for taking things forward and for improving it. And yeah, just that continuous momentum of, of change and improvement. Um, yeah. I like that idea. And I was just going to talk about the, the end of the book so that, you know, you work your way through so many different aspects in the book. And anybody listening please go and read it okay there is so much in there and we we could have chatted for another couple of hours quite easily <laughs> here Sean um there is so much to talk about um but at the end of the book you you have a call to action for readers and um, I'm also reading Alistair Campbell's latest book um which I think is called but what can I do and I got to your your sort of call to action section at the end and I thought, oh, wait, there's two books here that are encouraging people to do things and enabling people to say that small steps are good. You can do things that will make a difference, whether it's your shopping, what you're buying, who you're buying it from, having that awareness and that knowledge of, of what's out there. So if people read the book, can go and do things. What, what's your vision for the future? What would you like to see happen going forward? Mm. Yeah, so, so that final chapter is called The Power of One, and it really does try to build on the repeating theme that sort of comes in particularly at the end of each chapter, which is, as we said earlier, citing examples of where governments or in um, certain corporate bodies or professional bodies are, do are doing things differently so try and take it away from this sort of pie in the sky ivory tower oh what you know what if what about her? uh what if the world burns? so there, i think yeah i do believe in the power of one and i think if none of us do anything differently then definitely nothing will change but equally we don't have to do everything differently um and there's i love the, the phrase um paralysis through analysis you know some people just scrutinize their own actions and inactions to such a degree they think flipping out I might as well just carry on as carry on as I am yeah. <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. rocky road <clears throat> um so yeah it's stuff we've talked about um I'd break it down into um personal level and that's some of our food buying choices for example that we've already talked about uh, what we can do to influence businesses and what we can do to influence governments um allied to kind of on the farm animal welfare and food buying actions Allied to that is the concept of less and better. I think when the the, the intersection now between um, some of the animal welfare implications of farming, but also the, some of the environmental implications as well, which are you know being well scrutinised and, and looked at, um, they can both be helped by by eating a bit eating less meat and dairy, but then uh, as we say, retaining proportional spend. So basically, spending the same amount of money on a bit less and we can help fund um, higher quality food um, and that's been promulgated by BBA as well that's their that's policy to support less and better on the wildlife side I talk about things like if you are fortunate to have a garden then you can be you can garden with nature in mind that's you know create helping create habitats maybe a little pond a nest box a bat box pollinator friendly plants that you choose to plant all that kind of stuff berries for the birds remembering that Animals in sport, uh, if you attend or bet on sporting uh, events that, that use animals, then 
you are implicitly supporting the way the animals are treated. So if either reading through my book or elsewhere, you have concerns about the way they're treated, then you can be, you can reflect on that before choosing to better attend businesses. You know, you can look at things like policies at your workplace. If you have a canteen, if you're bringing sandwiches into work, have you had a discussion about the sorts of food that, that you that you're supplying or bringing in similarly you can ask at restaurants those sorts of questions and then influencing governments we've already said that might be through getting involved with a, a, a charity's petitioning or lobbying they'll often you know try to mobilize their supporters and if that's on a topic that you care about then definitely don't ever feel that your voice or signature won't count because they really really do for sure um in most cases and you know, you can also write to your local MP or, or politician. There's a good example of that at the moment. Good plug for this. You may know that the um, government have just passed or signalled that they intend to ban electric training collars in dogs in England. But just as we're approaching when that would and should go through, it, there's a sense that the government might be wobbling a little bit on, on the intention. And so BVA currently right now have a template letter that's gone out is available to all vets and vet nurses and veterinary professionals to um, you know, download and send to your local MP. Um, so that's a classic example of where we can really get involved. It's pretty low input from us. You know, the letter is written. Yes, you'll tailor it to your MP. You might put in a couple of sentences if you want to about how that issue has impacted you or your personal experience of it. That's fine. But you don't have to. You can just sign the letter and get it away. And that's brilliant. If if X thousand vets do that, as they have previously, we had the BVA had another great campaign around um, making sure sentience was enshrined in UK legislation, animal sentience um, post-Brexit, because that, again, was under threat. And vets and nurses mobilised, you know, and they did get involved with that campaign. That's brilliant. So you can look out for all this kind of stuff and just stick your name on. Yeah. In your lunch break or whatever if you get, if you, if you get one <laughs> um, but yeah you know this there are loads of things out there that, you, that we can all do and I think it's it's important now, I, I know there can be sometimes a bit of pushback on that and people will argue commentators say uh you know putting an emphasis and a focus on the individual absolves corporates and governments of their responsibilities they'll, they'll think everyone will just get on with this and sort it out themselves so I am clear that my belief in the power of the individual is not only for the value of that action in itself, but also the signal that it sends to the businesses, to the government. So I'm hopefully don't shouldn't reasonably stand accused of saying it's you know all about little me and no one else has to do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and if we think back fifty years to what food production was like you know maybe after the war or that and thing how things have have evolved um mm. would you would you ever consider writing a second volume to follow up in i don't know 10 15 years time to look at how things have changed yeah well i definitely wouldn't rule it out i mean i love <laughs> i do love writing um and it's been very rewarding to be able to you know get this one out there and to i mean not least to have discussions like this it's just been so lovely to for it to be something of a, a platform to, to have conversations that's what I've enjoyed most about it um so yeah I don't have a uh, a, a, a detailed plan in mind <laughs> right now 
I think that was a case of wanting to walk before I ran. But um, yeah, no, I love writing and I'm really passionate about the topic. So yeah, let's see. maybe see, see what happens. Watch this space. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got two little ones now as well, which doesn't make it easier. A three-year-old yeah. and a seven-month-old. That's tricky. <laughs> that's that's going to take up your time, Sean. So, yeah, maybe need to wait till they're a wee bit older. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, yeah, let's not rule anything out. <laughs> see, see what happens. Well, thank you so much for sparing the time to chat to me this afternoon. I've really enjoyed that. I've been writing so many notes as you've been talking and things I now need to go and find out more about and, and to look at. I think you've you've just highlighted so many different aspects of welfare, good aspects, challenges, things we need to try and fix. But I think it's really empowering for owners, farmers, vets, students, for everybody really, to, to know all of this and to appreciate that, yeah, we can do something to help, even if it is just that that little thing about feeding the birds in your garden and mm. looking after wildlife right the way through to changing government policy and, and all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, we'll include some show notes and any links and further info and obviously link through to BVA and all those other sites that you've mentioned will include all of that for everybody. Um, but yeah, just thank you so much, Sean. Uh, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for the podcast. I mean, you're having these brilliant conversations about animal welfare, which is doing so much to help foster well, the dialogue and the awareness. So, I mean, thank you as well. You're welcome. We're, we're trying. We're doing a little bit, just like you've suggested, mm. you know, got to give, well. got to try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fabulous. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you to Sean Wensley for sparing the time to catch up with us. I'm sure you'll agree that was a really fascinating conversation covering so many different aspects of animal welfare. As usual, if you want to find out more about the show, please go to the show notes where we have further links and information. And if you want to keep up to date with any future developments, please follow us and find out more on the website. Speak soon. <laughs>